certainly the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, they merit their own response. But those allegations also open up an opportunity for a very important discussion. We'll have it on today's Corey Truax Show. the show that is dedicated to deeper talk on culture, politics, and the church. It's deeper, better thinking than what the rest of media is giving you on TV or in podcasts or on radio. And so while I do need to give you the facts of the case of what's going on with Brett Kavanaugh and the allegations against him, truly, there's some bigger, deeper things happening there that we should discuss regarding what is qualifying and disqualifying of public leaders. We're going to get to that in just a moment. My name is Corey Truax, securing the blessings of liberty since 1986. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets most Sundays at Greenville High School, downtown Greenville. Last Sunday we met back at our home property because Greenville County Schools shut down their facility despite that storm not doing much to the upstate of South Carolina. Nevertheless, Beachwood Church, Greenville High School, Sunday mornings, 1030, you certainly are invited. First the facts, then some of my opinion, and then I'll give you some some deeper thoughts. So the facts of the case. Brett Kavanaugh is a highly regarded, highly qualified person to be on the Supreme Court. It, it, we are fortunate that the right people were around the President of the United States to put forward Brett Kavanaugh as a nominee to the Supreme Court. He was number six on my list of six finalists, but he's fine. He was He's going to be a fine judge. As I get into, get into this discussion, for those listening live on Christian Talk 660 and not to the podcast, I should mention, I am talking to you on Monday. It is Monday the 17th of September. This will air on Saturday. And so I know there is peril, so much peril in talking about this on Monday when so much could happen this week and this airs live on Saturday. But to the podcast audience, we're going to get this out as fast as possible so that if these comments age poorly... At least it won't age poorly on the podcast. In any event, as of right now, here's where we stand. Brett Kavanaugh is highly qualified, highly regarded. In the 11th hour of this process in the confirmation hearings, a woman has come forward. I believe her name is Chelsea Ford or Christy Ford, something like that. Last name is Ford. Accusing Brett Kavanaugh of in high school, back in high school, the early 80s, before I was born in some kind of drunken party that... Brett Kavanaugh and a friend, both drunk as teenagers, get her into a room and he gropes her. This is not, uh, so she doesn't allege any kind of intercourse. She doesn't allege sexual contact beyond that. So as teenagers in a drunken state, groping this woman, uh, a friend friend in the room. Brett Kavanaugh, for his side, outright denies it. It's not, hey, this is a long time ago. I'm asking forgiveness. He straight says, this did not happen. It's not true. Those are the facts of the case. A further fact that needs to be mentioned. It is apparent that Senator Feinstein of California, she has had this information since early July. She's been sitting on it for two months. She brought it out at the politically opportune time. Now, the fact that she used this strategically, the fact that Senator Feinstein has used this in a way that's unethical and immoral, that does not mean that it's false necessarily. Just because some Democrats used it immorally does not mean the actual claim is false. The claim needs to be evaluated on the face of its merits, prima facie. So, there's no way to verify this. On Monday, as I am gone through the, the evidence, I don't find her story particularly compelling. And, 
And as a consequence, because I want that to be true of me, whoever you are, I want that to be true of you. That if someone comes along and accuses me of something, accuses you of something, I want the, the ethic to be, well, you're making the claim you've got to prove it. You're, I've got to assume innocence until proven guilty. I want that benefit of the doubt. I think people deserve that benefit of the doubt for the most part. And, and Kavanaugh specifically in his life, through his, his lifetime, he certainly deserves it. And there are characters in our government and in public life that have reputations where it's easier to believe a bad thing about them. But Brett Kavanaugh is not one of those people. He's had a sterling career, and there's no reason to believe this allegation against him. And just outright, I don't. And to be consistent, I wouldn't believe an allegation about Barack Obama like this. I wouldn't believe an allegation against, uh, we'll take another one, Nikki Haley. This happened to Nikki Haley, the previous governor of South Carolina, now UN ambassador, when she was running for governor against, who was the other finalist there? Uh, It was Gresham Barrett. Gresham Barrett, who used to be my congressman. He was the other finalist in that GOP primary. And as she was getting towards winning this thing, a terrible wannabe journalist, a yellow journalist out of Columbia who who just does garbage work, who says salacious things for the sake of the clicks and the, the revenue he gets from people clicking on his website, he claimed he had a, a, a sexual affair. He committed adultery with Nikki Haley, that they had an ongoing relationship at one point in her marriage. I believed her at the time. I just outright believe you because there's no evidence to establish that you have done this terrible thing. And I would apply it across the case to all people. You've got to provide some more evidence for this. So that's where all the facts is. That's a little opinion. And then a little bit more opinion. As, as this airs on Saturday morning, I think it would be a travesty as where things, as the information I have right now, it would be a travesty if Brett Kavanaugh is not confirmed on Thursday. I hope that what happens is that vote takes place. He is confirmed. He's qualified. And there's no reason to there's no reason to believe this. We we can't let allegations start being assumed true. We're already a broken country. If we start going down that route where we just throw out innocent until proven guilty, we're, we got a major problem in the country. So that's the the case. That's what's in the news. But my interest for a long, long time is what's underneath the news. And so I want to get to some of those things. So one, I, I, I got uh, several people, uh, one, and then one on Twitter, one just personal friend through text, that w- w- criticized Kavanaugh as someone who was part of the Bill Clinton impeachment processes, and he was. Kavanaugh was part of the, the process of the impeachment of Bill Clinton. He worked on that case. And now the guy... This is the this is the claim. I certainly understand it. The the guy who worked towards in impeaching Bill Clinton because he lied about treating women terribly is now being caught up in this kind of these kinds of allegations. I think there there actually are some distinctions here that are important. One, Bill Clinton's accusers. When, when there's that many, this becomes plausible. That's, he is one person, by the way. I put him and President Trump in the same category. When I hear a, an allegation regarding President Bill Clinton or President Donald Trump that is of a sexual indiscretion, my knee-jerk reaction is to believe it. Because they both have a reputation of doing this, they've both been accused of it a bunch, one of them bragged about it a lot, 
And so while if they're, they have a denial, I would want to see more evidence. My knee-jerk reaction is, well, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that's, that's just what they do. That's their whole lives. They have been, they've had no sexual ethics and no sexual morals. Therefore, of course, that's the case. So uh, with Brett Kavanaugh, however, he, one, he gets that benefit of the doubt. But this is not an accuser coming in the last 30 years. And we're talking about someone who says, as a teenager, he did this. Teenagers are culpable for their for their actions. But th- what this is, I don't even know what you would charge that person with if, if a 16- or 17-year-old guy drunkenly gropes a 16- or 17-year-old girl. I don't know what that crime is. I know it's immoral. I know it's unethical. I don't know that anything else would have changed. Whereas with Bill Clinton... The, and for Donald Trump for that the matter, but with Clinton, this is specifically power dynamics. It's using his his power over younger women and subordinate women to get sexual favors. This, it's, it's adultery. He was married to Hillary Clinton the whole time. I can't equate the two. I can't equate a 16 or 17-year-old guy groping a 16 or 17-year-old girl with Bill Clinton's lifetime of sexual immorality and indiscretion. I can't put those things in the same category, and I can't do that because they're not. They're not in the same category. These are different things altogether. So that's that is one. Now two, this starts to create a conversation about what is qualifying and disqualifying. And I think that's an important discussion to have regarding public officials. I go back to the 90s. Now I was a kid. I was a come on now. Let's let's be real about me. When Bill Clinton was reelected, I was 10. 10 years old. When he was accused by Monica Lewinsky, I was 12. When the impeachment goes down, I'm 13. I'm barely paying attention to anything. I am way more paying attention to Stone Cold Steve Austin and and, and The Rock on WWE than I am what's going on with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. But as I look back on it through history, I, I made this point before, I think it would have been useful for both sides that, that while the discussion was going on, to decide what would matter. Because the the discussion was, Bill Clinton did these things, and Democrats and liberals said, no, he didn't do those things. And, then, and right said, yes, he did. The left said, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. And then it became clear that, yes, he did. And then the, the argument out of nowhere switched, and it became, well, it doesn't matter. Those aren't his, about his public life. Those aren't about his job. That's his personal life, and we keep those separate. So it became, yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. Well, then it doesn't matter. What should have happened first was, well, if he did, does it matter? Let's decide that first. Is it important that he had these sexual indiscretions and then lied about them, got other people to lie? Is that an important thing? If we end up finding that out, will that be important? Getting people to declare that before we actually find out the facts, that's important. Are we going to care if this ends up being true? That's what we need to decide. What are those things in a public figure's life that are disqualifying. And are there, are there things where they can be disqualifying, but then over time you can make amends? I would use like Anthony Weiner as an example. Let's say you are a liberal out there that has a problem with the fact that Anthony Weiner uh, com- committed adultery several times. He seems to be addicted to sending pictures of himself to girls and young women on the internet. 
is is there a time period? Is there a process he can go through to where he could be restored? For Mark Sanford, we all know what he did. Is there a process? Is there a timeline where he spends some time out in the the political wilderness doing nothing, and you can welcome him back into the fold? So that's what I want to spend some time on today. What are those things that we can and should consider disqualifying and shouldn't? And I want to try to do that from a really specifically biblical perspective. This is different. This is important. This is different than deciding what is qualifying and disqualifying for a pastor. This is civic leadership. This is secular civic leadership. And so the restoration for a fallen pastor, what what is qualifying for, for him, that is different than this discussion, but we should decide that. We should go ahead and decide some kind of ethic by which to measure what are the morals and the and the qualities, the character that we are going to demand that our civic leaders, our political leaders have. And once they cross these lines, we are going to throw them into, out into that wilderness. So that's what we're going to do for a big chunk of the rest of the show. We'll, get, we'll come back in a moment and start that discussion on today's Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Connect to the show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there and get every episode of the show on demand at CoreyTruax.com, SoundCloud.com, slash CoreyTruax, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher. There's many, many other places where the show is. Hope you will get it and share it with others. You know, I just said find me on Twitter. This There was a Twitter question I got from a listener that started me down this road of doing an episode like this because I put out on Twitter after these allegations against Brett Kavanaugh came out that I was for confirming him, that there's no there's no real evidence to this, therefore, benefit of the doubt, Brett Kavanaugh should be put on the Supreme Court, and I got a question, well, then how are, how are you evaluating him differently than you did the president? Like, you said President Trump wasn't morally qualified, and you were right about that, so why are you so wrong about this when Brett Kavanaugh did this thing? And so, well, first, again, verification, we know what how President Trump behaved in his life. This is just an allegation of something that he may or may not have done at 17. And that is that's just fundamentally different uh, as, a, as, a moral, as a moral argument. But it got me going down this road of, well, how do we evaluate that? How do we, especially from a Christian perspective, evaluate what are the, the deal breakers? What are the things that someone must not have done? Or what characteristics do they need to have to be civic leaders? So again, I want to draw that line. Government and civic leaders versus pastors and church leaders. There are biblical passages for this, and Timothy and Titus, where you can see, well, what does a, an elder, an, a leader in the church need to be? What are the characteristics of that person to qualify? What are the characteristics of a deacon in a church? What do, what do they need to have to qualify for that? That's a different set of circumstances. And even in the idea of of restoration or so after a fall, what happens and things of like church discipline. I think that's first Corinthians five and ah, Matthew 23, I think is where you can find those. Like the, I'm not talking about church here. So we're going to, as, as we have these secular governments, what should we be looking for in leadership? That's where we're coming from. So whereas in the Bible, there is a really clear list of characteristics you're looking for in a pastor and a church leader, it's less clear. There's a, there's a less clear list of what we're looking for when it comes to civics. But here's what we can piece together. For example, in the Proverbs, we're told that when the righteous rule, so when there's righteous people, when there's good people, 
that are in charge of governments, people rejoice. And when the wicked, wicked rule, the people either groan or perish, depending on the translation you're using. So we do know that one of the things for the Christian, that one of the things we want is that we would like for the righteous to rule. We'd like for the righteous to have political power and civic power because what we know from the Bible, really what we know from history, is that when, when people of high moral integrity and high moral character are ruling, well, then there's going to be a better outcome for the people. And so at least we know that. We do know that the Bible does provide us models for leadership. So we can look at different models in the Bible of, of those who successfully led. That's not, that's not the purpose of those passages. You know, a lot of people try to use Nehemiah and Ezra, these, these books about folks who go back to Jerusalem to build the wall, to rebuild the temple, and they use it as like a business book. Like, here's, here's all the tips you need and the, and the kind of characteristics you need to lead your business or organization. That's not what those were for. But one of the byproducts is what we can at least, we can see some characteristics that are useful and that might be laudable. And this was one of the frustrating things with the, the last election cycle. You were getting comparisons of the president to, well, you know, David was a great leader and he did all these things. Yeah, yeah, he did. He, and he did all these terrible things. He also, key point, repented. He actually repents very openly. You, you ever read a psalm? There's a whole bunch of those psalms that is, Lord, what have I done? How can I even come to your presence? You know, I, I, I am contrite and I come to you humbly for what I've done. You know, this is not the characteristic of, of the president. This is why that's so insulting. It's so unbiblical to have said that. If you were one of the people that was doing the, well, David, well, David did all that stuff and look how God used him. Right. If you are comparing this president to the person of whom it was said he was a man after God's own heart. You need to repent. You need to repent of your idolatry and how you have put this character on that kind of pedestal. He doesn't belong there. But we can look at those civic leaders of the Bible and maybe learn some characteristics that are uh, that are valuable, things that would help that person be a good leader, and that we want, as Christians, when we're looking, these are the characteristics that we want to decide if someone is qualified to be a Supreme Court justice like Kavanaugh or, or, or qualified to be even your, your city councilman or whatever it is. And so I did some work and went just went through, some, mostly Proverbs, to look through the, those ideas. What are those things that are laudable? What are those characteristics that me, we might want to look for in a leader? So first, there's a big theme amongst the wisdom literature. So there's a chunk in the Bible called the wisdom literature that is Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, well, I guess no, that's uh, that's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and some folks include Job in the wisdom uh, the wisdom literature or Song of Solomon, the wisdom literature. But certainly Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, uh, the, the someone who the Bible describes as having a supernatural given wisdom. So here are some of the things he says that are good characteristics. So one. Someone who is seeking the Lord's plans. So there's a big chunk of uh, of Proverbs that would say to someone, hey, commit your work, commit your plans to the Lord. Don't, don't do them on your own, but, but look to something bigger than yourself. We're looking for that kind of person. Uh, another theme in Proverbs is modesty. That we are looking for leadership who is modest, not arrogant. Uh, there's a proverb, something to the effect of uh, everyone arrogant is a uh, in his heart is an abomination, uh, but these 
these modest people are going to have a blessing because they are humble. They'll hear other people out. There is in Proverbs, I think, 16, that uh, that a, a good that a, a leader, a leader in the community, his mannerism is such that even his enemies can be at peace with him. So someone who's seeking out peace, not always seeking out war. Or in Proverbs, I think it's 16, 13 again, but it's someone who surrounds him or herself with trustworthy people and counselors that is actually looking for counsel from others. It's, it's, uh, that's it, I remember, uh, righteous lips. So righteous lips are the delight of a king. He, he loves those who speak what is right. So for a king, he's looking for counselors that are righteous, that are saying the right things. These are characteristics that you want in a leader around you. So these are characteristics that does get you into the question of deeds. So outside of characteristics that are important for a leader, are there things they can do that disqualify them? And the reason this is even a conversation is we have to determine if if a deed, if an action outside of criminality, criminality is obvious, right? If they embezzle money, if they work outside the bonds of law, well, we're a culture that's beyond the Magna Carta. Magna Carta. We believe that our leaders are subject to the laws that we are. Now, the last few years, both parties, you might wonder. You know, I made a joke a while back. It was during the Hillary Clinton email thing. Like, forget about getting back to the Constitution. We just need to get back to the Magna Carta that our leaders are actually responsible for the same laws we're responsible for because it didn't seem like she was responsible for the laws that the rest of us would be would be punished for. But that, that question of what can you do to disqualify yourself, this is primarily about example because this is one of the things about being a leader. When you are looking for leaders, when you're trying to appoint leaders, one of the things you want true about them is, well, if the, the younger people in our community, if the uh, if, if those coming up in the next generation, even if those this person's age emulate him and emulate her and they find some kind of moral guidance and character guidance from that person, would that be good for society or would it be bad? Would it be good or bad if people acted like that leader? So that's why their outward behavior matters. And so you go through all the criminal things. Yeah, every criminal thing is disqualifying. So you get into these questions often of really sexuality. So I, let's go to let's go to Bill Clinton first. Was he was it disqualifying that he committed adultery while in office with at least one young intern, and then lied about it and tried to get other people to lie about it? I would say yes. It's disqualifying because if if you follow that person, if we start to lose that that outrage, I think it was Bill Bennett. Bill Bennett wrote, wrote the book Death of Outrage. If we stop being outraged at that bad behavior, then that behavior is going to become more accepted culturally in general. There's actually a direct correlation between people my age and how we think about oral sex compared to previous generations. And why? Because when we grew up in the news, what we heard was the President of the United States. He didn't actually have... He didn't have actual intercourse with this intern, but here's what he did do. And parents and adults and everyone was around saying, well, that's not that big of a deal. That's barely adultery. This was the attitude given towards that act. And so an entire generation of young people had a different attitude towards this because of what we saw in the news and the adults around us and how they engaged with that topic. And so it mattered. 
It mattered that he did it because the culture was affected directly by it. It mattered that he lied about it because the culture was directly affected by it. He should go. Anthony Weiner is another example. He's specifically doing things that if he's emulated, if anyone admires that, it's bad for the community. And so, and so we want to make sure that he is punished publicly. Why? Because if he's punished publicly, then we see as a culture, don't do that. There will be punishment for that. There will be, so you, don't, you don't want the consequences of that action. We'll go to Mark Sanford. It was good that he had to resign. It was good that he went away. Because if you behave this way, if you do this to your family and you lie about it and you try to conceal it and you hide it, there will be consequences to that. It was good for the culture to see if you do these terrible things, there's, there's something you can do to... Uh, if you do these things, you're going to be punished. There's going to be some kind of consequence for it. That's an important thing to, to do with our leaders, that we look for certain characteristics, but, but when they make specific mistakes, that they are punished for them, that they actually do matter. This is where I need to draw a distinction. had another discussion with somebody, I don't know, maybe a month ago. It occurred to me that uh, I'm not even going to blame them. I'll blame me. I apparently made my criticisms, my moral criticisms of the president in 2016 when he was running about his sexual indiscretions. Like they, Apparently, that's what this person thought I was most upset about. Like I was really upset that he had lived a life of adultery, that he bragged on Howard Stern a lot about committing adultery with other men's wives and how many porn stars he'd been with. Like this... This was what they thought I was upset about. You you just thought really bad about how he behaved, but Bill Clinton behaved that way. And it occurred to me, I, I guess I maybe I wasn't clear. It wasn't about just the deeds, the things done, and then that might get emulated and excused in the culture. It actually was about the characteristics, not just deeds, because those are two different categories. There are certain characteristics we want, and then there are, there are deeds that can be disqualifying, but... The characteristics were actually my biggest problem with that pres- with, with the president. You know, I went to 2 Timothy 3 at that time, and you know, that's actually about uh, the last days. It's, it's supposed to be the, the people on earth are going to become more like this in the last days. These negative qualities are going to become more common. And you just start reading through it, and you go, well, okay, well, these are characteristics we don't want then, right? We don't want characteristics who are, I'll read you some of these, who are lovers of self. Come on now. That's not even a hard one. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, this isn't even all that hard, guys to identify what my problem was? Was it all the outward sexual indiscretions? Is that the character that I'm supposed to be drawn to, the, the opposite was being displayed? Because literally the end of that verse in 2 Timothy, if I remember correctly, it's a, yeah, it's avoid such people. I just grabbed it and looked. Avoid such people. So here's some things about people. that Hey, if you see people who are lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and ungrateful... They're slanderous. They're heartless. We'll avoid those people. That I guess I should have made more clear. That was the actual criticism. It wasn't all the outward stuff. And so, 
this comes back around a little bit, and I have another topic I want to get to about restoration. This comes back around to the Kavanaugh thing. He's being accused of an outward act, a deed, for which there is no evidence beyond the accusation, and an accusation is not good enough. And then I look for, you look for characteristics, you evaluate leaders by their character and his history, and he seems to be, best we can tell, a really good, decent guy who's done the right things in his life. He, he has no, none of these accusations from his adult life. It's an accusation from when he was 17 that cannot be verified. And so, as I stand here on Monday, recording this, this show for you, there's no reason not to confirm him. He's got the characteristics we're looking for. He has the qualifications. This is, this is a distinction from a lot of the other situations we've run into with public leaders, which brings to that last thought here. So I started with the idea, if we are looking for leaders, if we're going to evaluate who's qualified and who's disqualified, well, we do know that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. So we'd like to see righteous leaders. We can see some of those characteristics in the biblical models of leadership through actual characters, but also the characteristics given to us in Proverbs. We can also see the inverse there in 2 Timothy 3. What are the characteristics we should avoid? And we see characteristics are distinct from outward actions, that there are actions you can take that because others might follow those actions and see them as an example, we have to punish those in the public sphere by removing those leaders. Final thing on this is then restoration. Is there a way back? There's... For, for pastors, you know, trying to draw this distinction in the church, there are some things that are, that are probably disqualifying from being like an elder ever again. There's never a, a, a deed you cannot be restored to God through repentance, but you know, sometimes the actual, uh, even in, like in marriages and friendships, you can be restored to one another, but it's never actually all the way the same. There's, there's different privileges and things that don't come back sometimes. And we, I could maybe do an entire episode on that when it comes to church leadership. But that's different than what we're talking about here. And so I would use Mark Sanford as an example. Mark Sanford went away in disgrace. I think he should have stayed away longer. But when he came back, I'll tell you, I, I remember listening to radio, radio interviews with him. He did one with Glenn Beck. That blew my mind. He seemed so contrite. He seemed so broken about what he'd done. He named what he did. He didn't make any excuses. He talked about how destructive it was and how terrible what he did was. And he ends up running for Congress again. I thought, I thought it was too quick. I thought it was too early. But he said all the right things, and then his behavior matched his words. He said all the right things, and then he seems, the best we can tell, to be doing all the right things outside of that. That's a, that's a person that should be restored. And I mean that for every politician. I mean that every politician, every civic leader. If they come publicly, here's what I've done. This is why it was wrong. This is why it was destructive. I'm going to start behaving differently, and then their behavior actually matches what their words are. I'm in. We should restore those people. Okay, so there you go. 
I know the, the Brett Kavanaugh story is the big one this week. It's a big, the big one right now. Specific to him, I think he should be confirmed because he has the characteristics. This outward deed is not a verified one, but that does, does lead to a broader conversation. What are we looking for in civic leaders, in congresspeople and senators and Supreme Court justices and presidents? What are we looking for in those leaders? I hope that that content was helpful to you. We'll be back with more of the Corey Truax Show in just a bit. Stick with us. Welcome back for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for sticking with us on this edition. What I want to do on our, on our final segment here before we do sports is get off of the discussion we've had about Brett Kavanaugh and characters that characteristics we look for in leaders. And I want to take you to some social media interactions that I witnessed this week. You know, when I was younger, I interacted a lot more on social media. You know, I've had people in media business tell me that I've got to do a better job of replying to all the comments that I get and replying to tweets and I don't respond to Facebook messages very well. And I don't because, you know, I'm busy. We all are. We have things to do. Uh, But I used to interact a lot more. I don't really. I don't post a lot. I apparently still have that reputation. You know, Corey, these the social media posts all the time. Yeah, I did when I was like 25. It's been a long time since I posted a lot uh, because I find it inane and unhelpful and very few people think. And In any event, I really witnessed two interactions. I didn't participate at all. I just watched two interactions on Twitter this week. And so I wanted to respond to them because they were primarily theological and I want to make sure we're spending time, as much time as we can on first things. Politics is downstream of culture. Culture matters more than politics. And culture is informed by our our religious background in the country and how we're thinking about spiritual things. And so I want to spend some time on those two items. Really, it comes down to two cliches or two phrases that are popular in certain parts of American Christianity that need to be corrected. So the first one was this. There was somebody who was doing the right thing in that they were being very specific about their theology and the words they use and the the way they talk about the Bible and they were doing a very good job. And someone got someone who I just thinks a lot more shallow. There's a lot more shallow about theology. They criticized that person for their pickiness and the pickiness with which they're using their language. And the way they did that is they said no creed but Christ. And so I get that. It's adorable, it's cute, but it's wrong. The, the claim of the no creed but Christ people is, you folks who are getting all specific about theology, you guys who really care about the systematic theology of these things, you're overlooking this the essentials. As long as we have Christ in common, everything else is fine. And there's some argument there, but there's, there's a lot of theology that matters. We have to get straight what we believe about Jesus. Your claim on whether or not Jesus is God, you know what that, that is? That's a theological argument. That's a creed that you have. You know, even the idea of no creed but Christ, that's a creed. So historically, what a creed is, is your declaration of what you and your congregation believes. Like at Beachwood Church, we actually say the Beachwood Creed every week. It's an amalgamation of a bunch of other ancient church creeds where where every word matters, where we say we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, one with the Father before all ages, very God, a very God. There's a lot more of that creed. I could say it all. So we have these creeds. Here's what we believe. Well, When you say no creed but Christ, you're giving us your creed. 
your creed is don't think about anything but Jesus. Nothing else is worth fighting over. Nothing else is worth getting correct. Just make sure that you get the Jesus part right. That is a creed unto itself. It just says don't worry about theology. And that person is shallow. The person who would say no creed but Christ is not thinking deeply enough about the consequences of theology, what we believe, and the consequences of what we believe on our lives. And the person on Twitter was handling it fine. I didn't get involved. But if you hear that, no creed but Christ. Right? That person is giving you some really garbage advice. Uh, we do need to have creeds. We need to have declarations of what we believe. There's even a, a local, you know, the local mega church in South Carolina. I've been proud of here re- recently. They actually took some time to get specific about what they believe. They took some time and did a, some sermons on why they do church. What's the purpose of church? Is it for the believer or the unbeliever? They took some time and did some sermons on the Holy Spirit and what they think about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role. This is important, and it's good for us to develop those creeds in what we believe. The second one was directed towards Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson's part of the resurgent. He was he took the last uh, election just like I did. We th- We saw it the same way, and he got accused on Twitter, I saw someone said to him, something that was said to me during the last election, sometimes you're going to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Right. So this is again, garbage, garbage thinking from, and you know what, I'm going to go farther on this one. This is from the pit of hell thinking. If you are the, you're the person out there that says someone, someone's thinking about heavenly things too much. Someone has their mind on things above too much. They need to think about more worldly things. Yeah, you are speaking for the devil at that point, and I'm not sorry for saying so. That phrase, this, that's part of Christian history, uh, is it, for that idea of well, you are concerned too much about theology and principle. You're not worried enough about uh, day-to-day consequences of your theology and your principle. And this is where I get in trouble with some folks. They get upset with me because I don't care about the consequences sometimes. They, they want they want to say to me, well, do you know what it would mean if we all believed what you believed and then acted that way? Yeah, I do. Well, don't you don't you know that that would be a bad thing? Uh, maybe in the short term. I, you know, I don't think about the short term. That's not what we're here to do. We think about the long term. Too many people are thinking about what's the consequence of that 10 minutes from now and one year from now and most likely one election from now. And no one thinks about what this means for 1,000 years from now. That's what I'm thinking about. What do we do and what does it mean for 1,000 years, 10,000 years from now? What are the eternal consequences to what we're doing? And so those folks that say that, you're, you are too earthly, too uh, heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That's what they're saying. They're saying you don't worry about the earth enough and the the world enough and the consequences. You're really worried about what's true and false, not what works and what doesn't work. And so let me just declare openly with a lot of clarity: it matters a whole lot more about true and false than what works and what doesn't work. This is a problem I run into in arguments. Someone is arguing about pragmatics, what will work and won't work. And then I try to bring that argument back to, well, I'm not really worried about what's going to work and what doesn't work. I'm actually worried about true and false. And then that person kind of makes it clear, although they don't articulate it, that they have equated the two. That if something works, it is therefore good. And if something didn't work, it was therefore false. 
Well, talk to Paul about that. Talk about the early church for that. Talk about persecuted, persecuted Christians for that. There's a lot of things we do right, and they don't work. And there's a lot of things people do wrong, and it works for them for a short period of time. And then the consequences of their actions ultimately come back and get them. So there is no creed but Christ. Eh, we, we need to have creeds. We need to actually have religion and things built out. And further, be, be heavenly minded. Don't have your eyes on things of the earth. Have your, things on, have your mind on things above. That's it for serious stuff. Let's do sports. As we do, we're going to finish up talking sports with a sports correspondent of the show. His name is Heath Powell. Hello. Hello. So, college football last weekend, maybe the most exciting game was Auburn versus LSU. Yep. That was a good one. Jordan Hare, I think it was, in Auburn. Just general reaction. I mean, that was a juggernaut of a game. Both highly ranked. What do you take away? Yeah, they were. Um, You know, what surprised me the most is Auburn was up by 20 at home, and LSU came back and won. Yeah. Um, You know, last second field goal, it can happen. Clemson did it to LSU. Yeah, you're not supposed to lose those at home when you're up right. there, which makes me question Jarrett Stidham. Yep. He's not nearly as good as I thought yeah, he his was. His decision-making seems suspect to me. Once you have gained a 20-point lead, unless you're the Atlanta Falcons in the yep. Super Bowl, <laughs> oh, that's so hard to say to them. But sorry, guys. Yeah, but Tom Brady's not running out for LSU either. Right. And so it shouldn't have happened, um, but it does seem to me the, the, the SEC is going to eat it, eat itself to death in yeah, West. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah, so L, maybe a- A&M then beats one of them, and LSU beats another. And right. Um, my guess is Alabama beats all of them. I'm thinking there's going to be a two-loss team in there somewhere. To make it to a playoff? I mean, maybe in the SEC championship. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think the playoff. Absolutely there'll be a two-loss. Yeah. I don't know how you get out of there without it. Um, okay, then the other big, I guess, upset was the Mormons of BYU. Yes. Actually, what is their – Mascot? The Cougars. I didn't know that. All right, so the BYU Mormon Cougars uh, beat Wisconsin a preseason Yes, playoff they did. Yeah. Well, I had them in my four, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, this, I don't know if it's one of those early season things where they're just like a day school or they're overrated. or I know their offensive line is very talented, mm-hmm. but evidently, I don't know. They just dropped the ball, it seems like. Was that at home as well? I believe it was. Yeah, you can't lose those at home. No, you can't. <laughs> in, the, in the Big Ten, Ohio State actually does look real, and they're about to get Urban Meyer back. So right. I still well, they're always talented. Wisconsin could still win that division. They could. Over there. I don't see why not. Because they're opposite the division of Ohio State. Yep. Yeah, they could still win that division. There's no reason they could. Um, okay. Then the other let, one. Let okay. me give you one. Yes. How about Florida State at Syracuse? Florida State is such a sad. They are so bad. It, like, you knew they couldn't block anybody last year. They definitely can't this year, and it's just it, – I'm not. I'm just not used to seeing Florida State this bad. Here's what gets me. It's very bad. If you put Florida State's roster in the yeah. NFL draft, right. Syracuse's roster in the NFL draft, Florida State has more NFL players. Yeah, they do. How are they so terrible? They just are not good. It's real – like, it's it's dumpster fire level. Yeah, they, like, they should be 0-3 right now. They're not – and it doesn't even feel like they're underperforming. It just seems like this is how good you are. That's this where they're at. Yeah, it's not like they're – they're just letting people down. It's just they're not that good. And where usually you can – you say the offensive line is some of it, but I can't really put my finger on what they're doing wrong. Yeah, well, Francois can't throw the ball because he's on his back the whole game. Yeah. I'm just – you know, Cam Akers is awesome. Yes, but he can't run because he, he barely gets the ball and he's getting hit. Willie Taggart, I thought, was inheriting – and I'm right. He inherited a lot of talent. I just thought Jimbo Fisher had lost their – 
focus. Right. I just think Jimbo Fisher wanted out of Florida State. Yeah. Because Clemson's getting all these facilities, all this stuff. Florida State's not getting all that. So where does he go? There, there might also be a direct correlation between Clemson's rise and a couple other pl- programs' rise because there's only so many talented players. Right. And so if Clemson gets them all or Alabama or Ohio State gets them all out of Florida, yeah. well, they're not going to Florida State. Right. And so it could be directly related. And it's just, you know, Jimbo Fisher's a better coach than Willie Taggart. Yes, he is. I mean, he goes to Oregon for one year, doesn't do much, comes to Florida State. And, you know, I wasn't expecting much from Florida State, but I'm I'm pretty surprised at how bad they actually They're, look with you know, the eyeball test. The state of Florida itself, man. It's, I thought Miami was going to be better. I think they're overrated. I think they surprised some people last year. I'm, yeah, I don't, I'm not and buying the, any of them. And the Florida Gators, man. Oh, like, man. What's going it's on so in that bad. state? I know. It's sad. Like, that, who is the best team in Florida? Probably UCF. It's UCF or SF. Yeah, probably. One or the other. It's got to be. I would take my shot with Jacksonville State with uh, old Zarek. Yeah, old Zarek Cooper. Uh, tr- taking a shot at it. But that's in Alabama. It is it? Jacksonville State's in Alabama. Yeah. No way. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Because <laughs> that's like the capital of – Tallahassee's the capital. But Jacksonville yeah, but that? you automatically assume, well, Jacksonville State's in Florida. I did assume yeah. that. I, I learned a new <laughs> thing today on the Corey Truax Show, and you did too, listener. You learned a new thing. Jacksonville State is in Alabama. Okay, my uh, thesis thus far, I, I, I don't think anyone's going to touch Alabama. They just – they look unstoppable. Well, they're a different animal with Tua running the offense. They We've are. said this before. Nick Saban has historically just – needed a quarterback as a manager to do what he tells him to do, to hand the ball to whom he tells him to hand it to. Yes. Now they have an actual playmaker at quarterback, and you can see the difference. They've obviously always been super talented, but now they have a playmaker in the most important position in sports at the quarterback position. And I tell you, I I hope that Alabama gets there. I hope that Clemson gets there. I would love to see that matchup. I really would. Yeah, that's the only team with maybe any shot. Yeah, and I know people are tired of Clemson, Alabama, whatever. I want to see that squad against that squad. That's what I want to see. I am never tired of excellent football. Right. I don't want to see Alabama roll over everybody. I think Georgia can challenge. Maybe maybe Clemson can. But the way they just went into Ole Miss – Beat them like children, especially after the first play of the game. Yeah, Ole Miss gets a touchdown, place is going nuts. Then all of a sudden, it's forty-nine to seven. Yeah, <laughs> like by <laughs> halftime, it was just they're just so they're so well coached. They're always well prepared. Out of high school, everybody knew Tua could throw it, mm-hmm. which made no sense why he was going to Alabama when Saban doesn't want you to do that. Right, but Tua kind of pigeonholed Saban into where this is how you're going to have to play. I mean, he proved it in the national championship mm-hmm. where Tua wasn't even getting on the field if they weren't going to lose thirty to nothing. Yes, that's the only reason Tua got in. And then once he made his statement in the game. Coming into this year, how do you not let him play? Yeah, they're bound for another playoff run. It's just now a matter how how do you defend him and slow him down? And the two yep. defenses that have the athletes to do it are Clemson's and Georgia's. Yeah, right now Alabama looks fantastic. Now it's a long season and they always do well. I'm not saying that, but you know injuries happen and things happen, and that's why I like playing the games. On the uh, keeping it in the SEC for a minute, I hate canceling football games. It, it appears that South Carolina did the wrong thing. It appears a lot of teams did the wrong thing. North Greenville, where I work, we we can't we canceled a game like we said on Wednesday. We're not playing. Look, man, it North was sunny. Greenville is 13 minutes from my driveway. Yeah, and it was 85 degrees with a slight breeze. Yeah, it was pleasant <laughs> and and not cloudy. Yeah, you yeah. kick that game at noon. It didn't even start raining on Saturday. To what, like seven or eight? Yeah, I was sitting in the woods and it was probably 6:45 and it started sprinkling. So because hunting season started. Because hunting season started. Yes, it did. Did you see anything out there? I did not. Yeah. Well, look, my tree stand. I was sitting 25 feet up. I'm just. Swaying all over the place, so I got down. Yeah, you know, you know, in hurricane type I was winds. Like, you know, I may need to get out of this tree. <laughs> I've got a wife and kids to tend to. Anyways, I wouldn't be able to shoot it if it was standing five feet from me. Right, the wind takes care of that. Well, then, in our final three or four minutes here, 
of the Clemson game, uh, Kelly Bryant did something to his chest, apparently. That's yeah, well, when he came down, I knew he landed on the ball and hit his face mask square on the ground. So I thought maybe he might have a slight concussion or he just knocked the wind out of him, but evidently bruised his ribs. So okay. which, that shouldn't be a big deal. No. Well, they do have another quarterback on the roster who seems like he's okay. Yeah, they got a pretty good kid that can play for a few minutes, I yeah. guess. Yeah, Tre- Trevor, can t- <laughs> if he had to play the Georgia Tech game this week. Yeah, but not only – I don't think Chase Bryce gets enough love. And that really aggravates me because right. I really like Chase Bryce. Yeah. He does what he's supposed to do. He, he's always there. You know, I just like that kid. Was he the number one out of Tennessee or out of Indiana? No, I believe Chase Bryce was out of Indiana, yeah. Indiana. He was that guy. I mean, he could play for most – No, that was Hunter Johnson. Chase Bryce is out of Georgia. You're out of Georgia? Yeah, okay. that's right. He, that, that kid could play at a lot of Division One programs. He could. And he's enjoying himself. He just bides his time and does what he's supposed to do. Yeah. And I'm glad when he gets in. Me too. Uh, so that Georgia Tech game coming up is something that Venable solved a thousand years ago. Well, he solved it, but not only that, but they played Furman, who runs the option. They played Georgia Southern, who runs the triple option wing T weird, weird stuff, thing. 1920s. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not worried about that. Plus, Georgia Tech looked horrible last Saturday. Yeah. Uh, there, there's Lost a lot, to Pittsburgh. There's a lot of teams. They're just inexplicably bad It just bad seems right like now. there are maybe six or eight teams that are really, really good, and the rest of them are really average. Yeah, whatever happened to uh, – Parity. Or, yeah, parity, but also there was there was tiers to football. There was that one or two excellent programs, maybe eight or nine who were pushing. Right. It just feels like, well, there's Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia. That's there's pretty much what it seems like. Ohio State might be with them, and then there's a giant gulf. Yeah, I would put those four on the on the top level. And then everybody else is pretty much mediocre. Yeah, nothing good happened in there. Um, okay, so one last thing I wanted to give on that Clemson uh, that Clemson game is Justin Ross. Yes. I mean, I know they're playing Georgia Southern. Yep. But he really is very special. He's no, I'm telling you. This is why I keep saying If they would put Higgins on one side, Justin Ross on the other, what are they going to do? Because they can't double both of them. I know technically they're both the same player, same position. They are, yeah. But good grief, if you've got two of them. Run one wide to that boundary, one run wide to that boundary. What Kelly Bryant fails to do sometimes with those talents is give them a shot to make the play. Right. Just, like, release it, man. Just give yeah. a shot. You know, and that's Clemson's offense. Put the ball up where if the receiver can't catch it, it's not an interception, it's a complete pass. Just let the receiver make a play on the ball. Yeah. yeah this is something I like Trevor for more. Right. Uh, as he does get – I, I love them both, but he does this – I'm going to fling it. Yeah, and I Watson got, did the same thing, which, you know, people say he had a lot of interceptions, but that's the offense. You throw it up there and you let the guy make a play. You see if your guy is better than their guy. That's right, and, and I like that. At Clemson, typically he is – why receiver you, man? Yeah, they're better than those DBs. All right, we're all out of time for Talk of Sports. Thanks for coming and doing it. I appreciate it. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.